You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the 19th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. So as you probably already know, this episode is the continuation of our coverage of the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. In the last show, we gave the background to the 1858 Senate race between Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln, and then we talked about the first two debates, which were held in the Illinois towns of Ottawa and Freeport. In this show, we'll give a brief summary of each of the five remaining events, and then we'll wrap things up by talking about the results of the election and the significance of the debates. All right, so let's dive right back into it. The third debate was held on September 15, 1858, at Jonesboro, the county seat of Union County. And Union County, in the far southern part of the state, was among the poorest in Illinois. And curiously, this southern part of the state was known as Egypt because of its proximity to the river town of Cairo. Which is actually spelled C-A-I-R-O, like the capital of Egypt. Exactly. And anyway, the counties of southern Illinois were also known as Egypt because they had the state's highest concentration of people who had been born in slaveholding states. And as a result people with the most hostile attitudes toward African Americans and the Republican Party. And so Lincoln knew he would face a distinctly unfriendly crowd at Jonesboro. But so would Stephen Douglas. The Democrats in Union County and the surrounding area were Buchanan loyalists, and so were ill-disposed toward Douglas. Unlike the boisterous welcomes he had received at Ottawa and Freeport, Only about a hundred people had been on hand to greet him at the train station here. Well, plus, the Illinois State Fair had just started up in Centralia, and that popular event pulled people away from the third debate. Probably only about 1,500 people turned out at Jonesboro to hear the two candidates. Douglas had the opening speech this time, but one observer noted the senator seemed uninspired. Quote, the delivery was very bad, a sort of schoolboy monotone. End quote. At Jonesboro, Douglas returned to his attack of Lincoln's house-divided speech, to Lincoln's assertion that the nation could not remain forever half-slave and half-free. Douglas asked, why not? Douglas told the crowd that it was not the institution of slavery which was dividing the country. He said the real source of discord was the constant agitation stirred up by the abolitionist. Douglas stated that, quote, 
I hold that this government was made on the white basis by white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever, and should be administered by white men and none others. End quote. Douglas warned that Lincoln and the black Republicans would not only grant citizenship and the right to vote to freed slaves, but would allow black men to sit on juries and allow them to marry white women, which Douglas well knew was the ultimate horror to many people in both the North and South in the 19th century America. When his time came, Lincoln's counterattack at Jonesboro was fairly unremarkable. He returned to the questions he had put to Douglas at Freeport and then added a new one. If slaveholders moved into a territory and found their peculiar institution obstructed by unfriendly local legislation, could they appeal to Congress to enact a federal slave code, and would Douglas vote for it? You see, Lincoln was trying to set a trap for Douglas, just as he had at Freeport. If Douglas answered no, then he further alienated the South. If he answered yes, he alienated free soilers. To answer Lincoln's question about a federal slave code, Douglas, of course, simply fell back on the doctrine of popular sovereignty. All in all, Jonesboro was neither candidate's best effort, perhaps because neither had much invested in this third debate. After all, the region was as solidly democratic as could be, and so Stephen Douglas had nothing to gain here, and Abraham Lincoln nothing to lose. But regardless, both men turned in relatively lackluster performances at Jonesboro. If neither candidate had much invested in the Jonesboro debate, the same could not be said for the next meeting, held three days later. The fourth debate would take place September 18th at Charleston in the vital Whig belt, and so Lincoln and Douglas would be battling for the first time on ground that neither could clearly claim, but that both needed to win. Charleston was the county seat of Coles County, and Lincoln had tried many cases in Charleston over the years, and he also had a family stake in Coles County. You see, in 1837, Lincoln's father and stepmother had eventually settled on a farm about a dozen miles east of Charleston, and Sarah Bush Lincoln, 78 years old now, still lived nearby with a granddaughter. Lincoln had been under increasing pressure from Republican supporters to convincingly distance himself and the party from Douglas's Negro equality accusations. Bowing to that pressure, Lincoln used his opening speech at the fourth debate to directly address the issue. Lincoln said, I am not, nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social or political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. Lincoln went on to say, There is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Well, to his credit, Lincoln's views on this issue would change over time, but still, uh, every admirer of his wishes he had never uttered those words at Charleston in 1858. 
But to try and put his remarks into context, let me turn to David Herbert Donald's biography of Lincoln. And with regard to Lincoln's remarks at Charleston, Donald explains, quote, This was a politically expedient thing to say in a state where the majority of inhabitants were of Southern origin. Perhaps it was a necessary thing to say in a state where only 10 years earlier, 70% of the voters had favored a constitutional amendment to exclude all blacks from Illinois. It also represented Lincoln's deeply held personal views. Opposed to slavery throughout his life, he had given little thought to the status of free African Americans. Unlike many of his contemporaries, he was not personally hostile to blacks. Indeed, Frederick Douglass remarked on his entire freedom from popular prejudice against the colored race. But he did not know whether they could ever fit into a free society, and, rather vaguely, he continued to think of colonization as the best solution to the American race problem. End quote. At Charleston, Lincoln's concession to racial animosity shows how deeply weighed down he felt by the advice of his supporters who were despairing over Douglas's unrelenting Negro equality attacks. But as unfortunate as Lincoln's remarks were, Charleston ended up being something of a turning point in the debates. People far and wide began to notice that the most famous debater in the U.S. Senate had so far failed to knock out this country lawyer from Springfield, and this was a surprise of major proportions. Starting at Charleston, a shift in public perception was underway, as people started to realize that Abraham Lincoln was in fact giving as good as he got from the renowned Stephen Douglas. Alan Gelzo says, quote, People suddenly realized that something extraordinary was going on, that Douglas had failed to vanquish Lincoln. From now on, Lincoln was like Rocky Balboa. End quote. And just to um, share an interesting historical footnote here, uh, it was also at this point in the debates that Lincoln and his supporters started to grow seriously annoyed with the Illinois Central Railroad. You see, both Lincoln and Douglas were using the railroad extensively to travel across the state, but while Douglas was extended every courtesy, Lincoln was practically snubbed by railroad personnel. While Douglas traveled in a palatial private car, and also had a special flat car with a small cannon that was used to announce his arrival in each town, Lincoln, by contrast, was forced to catch rides as he could in ordinary passenger cars and sometimes had to ride in cabooses. Well, as this went on, Republicans grew more and more frustrated, and they started to accuse the Illinois Central of favoritism. Lincoln even mentioned the issue at a rally on October 5th. Even though they were quite obviously giving Douglas special treatment, no doubt in return for the fact he had sponsored federal legislation in 1850 that greatly benefited the Illinois Central, but railroad officials vigorously denied the Republicans' accusations. The dispute reached the point that the railroad's vice president wrote an open letter to the Chicago Tribune newspaper insisting that, quote, this company has taken and will take no part in politics, end quote. And here's the interesting part. 
Several years in the future, Abraham Lincoln would meet that railroad official under very different circumstances. You see, that vice president of the Illinois Central, who hotly denied showing any favoritism to the Democrats, was a fellow named George McClellan. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The next debate was held October 7th on the grounds of Knox College in the western Illinois town of Galesburg. Three weeks had passed since the last debate, and during that time, neither candidate had slowed down. But onlookers were beginning to notice definite signs of strain and weariness from Douglas. He had caught a cold, which swiftly developed into bronchitis, which he medicated with tremendous amounts of liquor. Even before his illness, people noticed that Douglas was drinking heavily on the campaign trail. Never known for being a teetotaler, Douglas fueled his famously antagonistic behavior with booze. But under increasing pressure to land a knockout blow to Lincoln, and now battling illness, Douglas was drinking hard. By Galesburg, a reporter said that Douglas's voice, quote, is growing hollow and husky, his temper is bad, and his whole appearance is jaded and worn, end quote. Lincoln, on the other hand, was energized as the momentum of the debates seemed to be swinging in his favor. Well, Galesburg, population 5,500, was in solidly Republican territory, and the atmosphere was electric. Not even torrential rains and gusting winds on the morning of the debate could keep people away. Estimates of the crowd ranged up to 25,000. The high winds that day forced organizers to move the speaker's platform, sheltering it close under the lee of the college's main hall. Lincoln and Douglas actually had to climb through the building's second-floor windows and then down to the platform. Lincoln drew a laugh when he remarked, At last I can say now that I've gone through college. 
Douglas had the lead-off position in this debate, but it was clear as soon as he stepped forward to speak that he was in trouble. The crowd was loud and boisterous and distinctly hostile to Douglas. Added to his trouble with the crowd, Douglas's bronchitis quickly rendered his voice hoarse and almost inaudible. Douglas tired rapidly, and one witness said, quote, His style of speaking was disjointed, as if he could not be heard if he spoke two words without pause between. End quote. When Lincoln rose to speak, the crowd, which had obviously found Douglas very hard to listen to, was delighted that Lincoln's high tenor voice rang out like a bell. And, you know, it's interesting that over the years, many people have noted the unexpected pitch of Abraham Lincoln's voice, but it obviously benefited him as a politician in the age before electronic amplification, since his voice apparently had tremendous carrying power and could be heard over a great distance by these crowds. But anyway, here at Galesburg, Lincoln made no mention of his own remarks at Charleston, and instead he challenged uh, Douglas's overt racism by addressing the basic immorality of slavery. Lincoln said, quote, I suppose that the real difference between Judge Douglas and his friends, and the Republicans on the contrary, is that the judge is not in favor of making any difference between slavery and liberty, and consequently every sentiment he utters discards the idea that there is any wrong in slavery. Judge Douglas declares that if any community wants slavery, they have a right to have it. He can say that, logically, if he says that there is no wrong in slavery. But if you admit that there is a wrong in it, he cannot logically say that anybody has a right to do wrong. End quote. Well, to his credit, at Galesburg, Lincoln rose above the, the crudity of his earlier remarks at Charleston. And here, he pointed out that if there was no hint of wrong in slavery, if the only guiding star of democracy was self-satisfaction, then Douglas ought to be lauded as a hero, and his policy of popular sovereignty deserved unanimous support. But, Lincoln asserted, if slavery was wrong, then one had to question whether democracy rests on a moral foundation, or whether democracy is simply a question of adopting policies that promote unrestrained self-satisfaction amongst a majority of the populace. During Douglas's final half-hour, he was continually interrupted by shouts and jeers from the large pro-Republican crowd. An infuriated Douglas actually began to argue back with his tormentors, and then his temper, frayed by sickness and fueled by liquor, snapped completely. One witness recalled, quote, His grand manner was gone. He shook his fist in wrath as he walked the platform. End quote. It was certainly Stephen Douglas's worst performance of the debates, and most observers concluded that Lincoln won the Galesburg event on all counts. A pro-Lincoln Chicago newspaper reported, Mr. Douglas, pierced to the very vitals by the barbed harpoons which Lincoln hurls at him, goes around and around, making the water foam, filling the air with roars of rage and pain, spouting torrents of blood, and striking out fiercely but vainly at his assailant. Six days later, the candidates clashed again at the Mississippi River town of Quincy, 85 miles southwest of Galesburg. This contest, and the next one at Alton, which would be the seventh and the last, took place in the vital Whig Belt, 
and so both Douglas and Lincoln would be campaigning hard to seal the old-line Whig vote. But by Quincy, Douglas was weakening and slowing, while Lincoln was building up momentum. The weather the week before this, the sixth meeting between the two debaters, had been dismal and cold, but the weather broke on October 13th, and the sun came out to warm the 12,000 people piled into the town square. Lincoln was the first step, and he came on aggressively, building on the same argument he had launched at Douglas the week before. Although blacks could not expect absolute social and political equality, Lincoln said, they still enjoyed the exact same right as anyone else to the inalienable freedoms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that were promised to all by the Declaration of Independence. Here at Quincy, Lincoln again hammered away at the basic immorality of slavery. He was not preaching outright emancipation, which would have alienated the old-time Whigs in the crowd, but Lincoln did paint slavery as a threat to virtue and the integrity of the Union. Douglas, still ill with bronchitis and still heavily medicating himself with liquor, rose unsteadily to speak in his own defense. But the little giant was seriously off his game, and he ignored Lincoln's challenge to debate principles and instead sluggishly launched personal attacks at his opponent. After spending half his time on those nasty personal attacks, Douglas then spent the other half insisting again that slavery itself was not the problem, rather the black Republicans' agitation over slavery was the problem. Douglas claimed that the moral question of whether slavery was right or wrong was entirely separate from the political process of popular sovereignty, which left the matter in the hands of a majority of a state or territory's voters. Douglas was clearly irritated and perplexed that Lincoln would try to turn a political question into a moral issue. When Lincoln rose for his final 30 minutes of time, he pointed out that the problem with his opponent's argument was that Douglas refused to see that slavery was the problem. And as for Douglas's by now standard tactic of falling back on popular sovereignty as a cure-all, Lincoln, as he had previously, pointed out with precise logic that the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision had left absolutely no middle ground in the territories for popular sovereignty to operate. When his allotted time came to an end, Lincoln was still going strong, demolishing Douglas's points one by one. At the conclusion of the next-to-last debate, most observers scored Quincy as another clear win for the challenger. The pro-Lincoln Quincy Daily Whig newspaper reported that Lincoln had given Douglas, quote, one of the severest skinnings he has received, end quote. Before we move on, I just wanted to share a recollection of Carl Schurz, who was a German-American Republican politician from Wisconsin who had traveled down to Quincy to witness um, the sixth debate. Schurz recalled that Lincoln's, quote, charm did not, in the ordinary way, appeal to the ear or to the eye. His voice was not melodious, rather shrill and piercing, especially when it rose to its high treble in moments of great animation. His figure was unhandsome, and the action of his unwieldy limbs awkward. He commanded none of the outward graces or oratory as they are commonly understood. His charm was of a different kind. It flowed from the rare depth and genuineness of his convictions and his sympathetic feelings. End quote. Schurz also noted that Lincoln's movements while speaking were unusual. Quote, 
His gestures were awkward. He swung his long arms, sometimes in a very ungraceful manner. Now and then, to give particular emphasis to a point, he would bend his knees and body with a sudden downward jerk, and then shoot up again with a vehemence that raised him to his tiptoes and made him look taller than he was. End quote. After the Quincy debate, both Lincoln and Douglas boarded a steamboat for the 115-mile journey down the Mississippi to the river town of Alton. Douglas had scheduled the Quincy and Alton debates just two days apart, so the seventh and final meeting of the candidates took place on October 15th. Although almost twice the size of Quincy, only about 5,000 people turned out for the final debate at Alton. Some spectators said that the low turnout was due to the fact that by that time everyone knew what both candidates would say. But two of those in attendance gladdened Lincoln's heart. When he stepped off the steamboat at Alton, his wife Mary and 15-year-old son Robert had been there to greet him. They'd made the journey from Springfield by rail. The Alton debate was Douglas's last chance of leading off. But although he promptly launched into another attack on Lincoln, Neatly summarizing his arguments from the previous six debates, one observer said that people were, quote, really shocked at the condition he was in. His face was bloated and his looks haggard and his voice was almost extinct, end quote. Lincoln's emphasis on the Declaration of Independence at Quincy had stung Douglas, and so, in a barely audible voice, he croaked out, quote, I hold that the signers of the Declaration of Independence had no reference to Negroes at all when they declared all men to be created equal. They did not mean Negro, nor the savage Indians, nor the Fiji Islanders, nor any other barbarous race. End quote. Douglas hammered on Lincoln's appeal to a higher morality, arguing that such considerations had no place in the political process. Douglas vehemently declared that sentiments such as Lincoln espoused were no basis upon which to agitate over any political issue and were not worth dividing North and South, not worth making the two sections into enemies rather than friends. Lincoln came into Alton hoping to administer a coup de grace on his opponent. One eyewitness recalled, quote, Lincoln was vibrant. Douglas was liquored up and near the point of collapse, end quote. When he rose to speak, Abraham Lincoln again concentrated on the basic wickedness of slavery. Determined to finish strong, Lincoln refused to back down on this point. In his biography of Lincoln, Ronald C. White says, quote, Toward the end of this final debate, when Lincoln must have been tired, he rose to the height of his eloquence. Focusing his final comments on Douglas's constant refrain that he did not care whether slavery was voted up or down, Lincoln responded that the real issue was the morality of slavery. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. Lincoln declared the issue to be the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. He continued, They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, You work and toil and earn bread, 
and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another, it is the same tyrannical principle. End quote. And so at Alton, seven weeks of debating came to an end. As Alan Gelzo points out, quote, Everyone knew that Lincoln had bested Douglas. He managed not only to hold his own, but when they got to the end, Lincoln was swinging harder than ever. End quote. Another historian noted that, quote, We are all abolitionists today. In Lincoln's arguments, we can see ourselves. We sympathize with his perception of the immorality of slavery. Lincoln is speaking to the future, to the better angels of our nature, while Douglas was speaking in large part to the past, in which slavery still seemed reasonable and defensible. End quote. But while Lincoln may have won the debates, he lost the election. Recent research has shown that Lincoln actually won the popular vote. Over 190,000 votes were cast for Republicans against 166,000 for the Democrats. But because of gerrymandering that worked against the more populous northern counties where Lincoln's support was strongest, the Democrats actually ended up controlling the new state legislature, and it re-elected Douglas 54% to 46%. It was a flawed but still significant triumph for the little giant. His re-election confirmed his standing as leader of the Northern Democrats and reinforced his position as his party's strongest candidate for the next presidential nomination. Some years later, Lincoln recalled that as he was walking home after learning of the election results, he was, of course, disappointed. Quote, but I recovered, and I said to myself, it's a slip and not a fall. End quote. Lincoln was right. For him, the 1858 election was a victory and defeat. He had battled the famous Stephen Douglas on at least even terms, clarified the issues between Republicans and Northern Democrats more sharply than ever, and emerged as a Republican spokesman of national stature. By the time of the fourth debate in Charleston, Lincoln was aware that because of the coverage by the Chicago papers, newspaper readers across Illinois and beyond were forming a wider second audience for each of the debates. Historians have noted that while Douglas tended to more or less repeat the same speeches at each debate, Lincoln composed new arguments for each meeting. That was because Lincoln quickly realized the value in the transcription and reprinting of the debate texts in newspapers across Illinois and beyond. Really, Douglas was only trying to persuade the crowd hearing him at that moment. But Lincoln came to see the debates as a newspaper serial, knowing that audiences across the country would be reading the texts of the debates in the pages of their local papers. And so, by introducing him to a national audience in that way, the debates set the stage for Lincoln's improbable run for the Republican presidential nomination two years later. Stephen Douglas had won re-election to the Senate, but Lincoln's forcing the slavery issue out into the open had fatally wounded Douglas's presidential prospects. In 1860, Southern Democrats would flatly refuse to support Douglas's nomination as the party's presidential candidate. The Lincoln-Douglas debates are 
justly famous not only for their historical significance, but because they still have lessons for us today. For Douglas, the essence of democracy was the creation of a happy and prosperous society for white people. The political process involved in creating that society, Douglas believed, ought to be unencumbered by moral or religious considerations. In other words, when it came to issues like slavery, Stephen Douglas was perfectly ready to move the goalposts depending on the will of the people as determined by popular sovereignty. But Abraham Lincoln thought there was a moral line that no amount of popular sovereignty could cross. Again and again, Lincoln condemned popular sovereignty because it tried to dodge the moral injustice of slavery. Lincoln truly believed that when it came to important national issues like slavery, the position of the goalposts was fixed by principle. What Abraham Lincoln ultimately defended in the debates was the possibility that there could be a moral core to a democracy. And as much as I dearly like to use all of that as a jumping-off point to talk about issues in present-day American politics, this is a history podcast, not a political gap fest, so I'll restrain myself. And with that... That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And this time we actually have two book recommendations for you. The first is Robert Johansson's biography of Stephen Douglas, which is appropriately titled Stephen A. Douglas. No less an authority than Lincoln scholar David H. Donald said of this book, At once a work of enormous scholarship and of deep insight. Here, for the first time, is the full story of a great career told with such skill that we can now understand why Abraham Lincoln found the little giant the most formidable political rival he ever faced. And our second book recommendation for this episode is a biography that we've referenced several times already on episodes of the podcast. It's by two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Herbert Donald. His one-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln, appropriately titled Lincoln, is beautifully written and a genuine masterpiece. So that's Robert Johansson's biography of Stephen Douglas and David Donald's biography of Abraham Lincoln. You can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast Facebook page and Twitter feed. And we hope you'll check out the Facebook page sometime, since each week we're doing creative stuff with photographs and facts and quotes. And then over on Twitter, we're still, just about every day, looking at what happened on that date 150 years ago in the Civil War. A big thank you to everyone who has liked us recently on Facebook. We really appreciate that. And we also appreciate Spiritwood Music's permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of the podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this show by thanking each of you for listening to The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week for John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.